Good morning. Hey, welcome to Grace. If uh, you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them at this point in time and turn with me uh, to a little book in your Old Testament called the Book of Amos. Uh, if you can't find it, feel free to, to look at the index. If you don't have your own scripture, uh, there should be a few Bibles scattered in the few, few backs in front of you. And if you don't have access to either of those, our text this morning should be on the screen. Uh, we're making our way in a sermon series on the Book of Amos called God's Passionate Plea to His People. And uh, turn with me to Amos chapter 2, starting in verse 6, is where we're going to be. Uh, This morning, our sermon is entitled, Bullseye, Bullseye on the Nation of Israel. So I trust that you're there or close to it, Amos chapter 2. Let's pray, and then we'll dive right in. So let's pray together. Father, would you be among us and with us? Would you speak to us through your word? Father, it's your holy, uh, inspired, altogether trustworthy and inerrant word. It's authoritative for what you would have for our lives. You have spoken to your people, your nation of Israel, long, long ago. And yet through the prophet Amos, you still speak to your people today. You have words for a nation that has gone awry. You have word for a nation that has rejected your word. You have uh, things to say to people who are involved in sin and immorality and idolatry. Father, you have a word for us today, as our nation is not all that different from the nation to which you spoke through your servant, Amos. And so help us to receive your word so that we might live differently, that we might be different people, that we might live according to your word, according to your standards, in your grace that you've demonstrated to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, you have been altogether good to all of humanity. You have loved us. You have created us. You have made us for a relationship with yourself. And yet, through our folly and rebellion, we have sinned against you. We have rejected your rule over our life and the ultimate source of joy. And we have gone after uh, pigsties, looking for joy in all the wrong places. You beckon us. You call us back to yourself. You have sent your very Son, the God-man, from eternity past, incarnate for us, becoming human being to show us how to live, to show us that he alone can live the perfect life that we need to be right with you, and that he alone, as both human and divine, can live and can die for us in our place as our substitute, and then rise again to defeat death and offer us new life now and eternal life forever through simple trust, through simple faith, through simply receiving this offer of salvation and forgiveness of sins. Thank you for your love for us. We pray that you would be among us, that your Holy Spirit would speak through me, and that, Holy Spirit, you would do your work in all of our lives as we hear your word from your prophet Amos. And we ask it in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said together. Amen. So I want to begin with a story about a bullseye this morning, as our sermon is entitled, Bullseye on the Nation of Israel. Uh, now, if you know me very much, you probably know that I'm not much of a gun person, not opposed to guns by any stretch. Uh, I just don't enjoy using them all that much. However, uh, early on when I was a young boy, uh, my dad got me a BB gun, and uh, that then gradually uh, uh, came to the point where I guess I was trustworthy enough with my little BB gun that he actually allowed me to, uh, uh, to shoot a twenty two. 
And I enjoyed that because it didn't make a loud noise. It didn't kick back on my shoulder very much. It was an easy gun to fire. And uh, back where I lived, we had about three acres behind my backyard. And uh, past those three acres uh, were just cows, you know, just cows that would, would graze. And so uh, I enjoyed on occasionally taking an aim with my twenty two at the rear end of those cows. Um, I hit them on occasion. I, I didn't all the time. I don't know if that's safe or wise, but I was 12 or 13, so that's what little boys do. Um, so I take my 22 and, sh- and, and target practice. Well, uh, I was getting ready for a, a community event that happened uh, in my town every year, and it was put on by the local Lions Club, and they called it the Turkey Shoot. And it happened pretty much in correlation with Thanksgiving, although it wasn't exactly at Thanksgiving. Now, it's not what you think. It's not like they would parade around live turkeys and we would shoot them. That's not how it worked. It was a fundraiser. And what would essentially happen is it was a gun shooting contest. So they would have targets with a bullseye in the middle, just like you envision. There's a bullseye and there's rings around the bullseye. And what they would do is you would pay for the opportunity to compete with about six to eight other people in testing out your shooting skill. And there was a variety of things that you could, you know, handguns to rifles to 22s. I don't know if they had BB gun (laughs) contests or not, but uh, I would always enter in the 22 contest because simply it was the only gun that I could shoot. Uh, And so uh, I was 12 or 13 and I remember being very excited because I was able to go and compete in the turkey shoot for the first time when I was about 12 or 13. Well, um, I I competed and uh, needless to say, I did not bring home a turkey. Well, they called it a turkey shoot because here's the deal. It was awesome. Uh, For every competition, the winner who had the closest shot to the bullseye got to bring home a what? A turkey, right? Hence the turkey shoot. So you could win your Thanksgiving turkey. So I was all excited to win our Thanksgiving turkey. First year goes by, I don't win. Second year goes by, I don't win. Third year goes by, my shot had gotten a little better, and I ended up winning my very first turkey. And uh, I was very proud, and I remember uh, coming home and showing my mom, hey, here's the turkey, here it is, I brought home the bacon, right? Uh, I'm providing the turkey dinner. And uh, what I was even more proud of is, is to the winner, they would give the, uh, the target, right? So they'd give you the target so that you could see your winning shot. And so I paraded home proudly this, uh, this target. Now, I didn't get a bullseye exactly, right? But I was close enough to the bullseye to win. And maybe I was a few inches off from the bullseye, but I was really proud about that. I was close to the bullseye and I had brought, in, I brought home the bacon, right? I brought home the turkey. As we uh, enter back into the world of Amos in Amos chapter 2, last week we saw what I call the roar, that is of a lion, the roar of God's judgment. Because last week, if you'll remember, we saw God giving messages of judgment upon seven nations that surrounded the nation of Israel. Now, the nation of Israel was God's target. And God called and commissioned Amos to speak to the nation of Israel. Let's take a look at the map. Because what we saw was seven roars, seven targets, seven shots, if you will, that God took to the nation surrounding the nation of Israel. And if you recall, what happened? He started up in the northeast, and then he went to the southwest, and then he went to the southeast, and then he went to the southwest. And as he got closer and closer to his bullseye, right, he, he shot up there, he shot down there, God shot at Moab, God shot at Phoenicia, then he shot at Ammon. But all the while, all the while, what was his main target? His main target, God's main 
recipient of this word that he's going to give through Amos is the bullseye right there in the center, is the nation of Israel. And so last week, Amos shot seven bullets, so to speak, but he missed the bullseye. But unlike me, he didn't do it intentionally. He did it very intentionally because his last shot is going to be his best shot. His last shot, he's going to hit his bullseye. And his bullseye is the nation of Israel. If you remember last week, there was a familiar phrase that Amos began each of these little sayings with, for three sins, dot, 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 even for four. And yet for each of the seven nations that he talked to, he only listed one or two transgressions, only one or two sins. And that should make the hearers there in Israel think, At some point, he's going to list three or four sins. And today, he's going to hit his bullseye. So as we open up to Amos chapter 2, let's start in verse 6. We're going to see the culmination of his first sermon, so to speak. He's spoken against seven nations, and now his target is upon Israel. And he's going to list not one, not two, not three, but four He's going to list four major transgressions, four major sins for which God is going to send judgment upon the nation of Israel. And these four transgressions, these these four sins are, are foundational. So what he's going to do throughout the rest of his messages in the book of Amos is he's going to take these four foundational sins and he's going to, he's going to expand upon them. He's going to highlight them, right? He's going to flesh them out. So if you're taking notes, four points. All we have today is four points, four sins that the nation of Israel is going to be judged upon. And I wonder, I wonder how close our nation here in America is to these four sins. So let's, let's walk through them. The first one is found in verse 6 of chapter 2, and it's what I will call social injustice. The first thing that Amos talks about as he gets to his target, his bullseye, is social injustice. So let's read together Amos chapter 2, verse 6, and the first half of verse 7. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. Why? Reason number one. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. And so we're going to get a list of four sins, right? Israel has filled up its list, so to speak. God has brought in judgment, and the first thing that he talks about is social injustice. So what was going on here? What was going on in, in, in God's nation that was making him so angry? Well, quite simply, the rich and the powerful in the land, those who were in control, those who were affluent, those who were influential were doing this. They were selling those who were indebted to them into slavery. So you owe me money. You owe me money. You owe me money. And because you owe me money and you haven't paid it yet, I'm going to sell you into slavery. That is what is being described here. Both the righteous, as the text mentions, the righteous were being sold into slavery. I believe that's a reference to those who eventually were honest. They could pay back the money if just 
given a bit more time, but the rich and powerful said, no, I'm going to sell you into slavery. And both the needy, that is those who owed them as little as the value of a pair of sandals. Okay, so we're not talking about huge amount of debt here. We're not talking about a huge amount of money. These wealthy and influential people were saying, listen, I know all you owe me is five bucks. I know all you owe me is the value of the very pair of sandals on your feet. But I cannot wait any longer. I'm going to sell you into slavery. And so notice the imagery that, that Amos uses. How does, how does he liken the rich and their oppression to the poor? What's the image that he gives to how the rich were treating the poor? Well, let's look back at, at it. He likens this treatment to the rich pressing the heads of the poor on the dirt of the ground. So the image is that they are oppressing them. There is the head of the poor man on the ground and they're taking their boot and stepping on the head of the poor and rubbing their face into the ground. It's an image of oppression. I want to share a quick story that maybe will help you understand this a little bit better. At least it helps me understand it a little bit better. This image of having your face pressed down into the dirt of the ground. So where I'm from, which is South Texas, uh, it doesn't get much rain. And so for a lot of times, especially during drought seasons, uh, the grass in South Texas is brown, if not altogether missing. So it's not unusual, and particularly when the drought is bad, for your front yard to not have any grass or bare patches. They're just patches of grass, and you might have dirt in your front yard. It's kind of a way of life. And so in seventh grade, I started playing football. Uh, In ninth grade, I stopped playing football. It's because I wasn't very good. Uh, But in seventh grade, I started playing football. And uh, believe it or not, back in those days, uh, I was a little bit chunky. Uh, I was going through what I called my fat years, my chunky years. And my mom always likes to poke fun at me because she said, well, you went to wearing these skinny winnie jeans and I had to buy you husky. And I said, well, that's how it goes, mom. So I was a little bit chunky, and so the coach said, you look like a fullback. And if you know anything about football, the fullback is basically, he's a little bit bigger, and he almost never, ever gets to run the ball. He's a blocker, right? He's a glorified, maybe a little more, little more mobile lineman, okay? That's what a fullback does, and that's what I did for my seventh grade football team, the Banketti Bulldogs. Go Bulldogs. So I was a fullback, and we would practice, and our practice field was practically dirt. So... There were patches of grass, but pretty much it was dirt. That's what we played on. That's how we played. And so I remember one specific play when the coach, it was the second team offense versus the first team defense. That means the offense that's not as good versus the defense that's very good, right? And I was on the second team offense. So that shows you how good of a fullback I really was. And for some reason, the coach said, let's give the fullback the ball. So what does that mean? That means they're going to hand the ball to me and they want me to run into a line of guys who are bigger than me and try to gain yardage. Well, I wasn't real keen on that. I didn't think it was going to work and I didn't want to get pounded by our huge defensive linemen. But what do you do? The coach calls your number. You can't not take the ball. So I did. So I lined up in my four-point stance. Hike. He hands me the ball. I take it tentatively. And at that point, my offensive line, which was the, what, first team? No. The second team offensive line. So they're not very good. Uh, This is what happens. By the time I get the ball, there are at least two or three defensive linemen upon me. You've seen this happen in football before. 
this is not going to end pretty. So I get the ball, and literally I take a step, and uh, there was a, a guy named Mark Gonzalez, okay? Maybe you remember these kind of guys in your class. We're good friends, uh, but we weren't that play, because Mark Gonzalez was a big hefty, strong defensive lineman, and he had thrown off my best friend who was supposed to block for me. Well, thanks. He threw him off, and this is what he did. If you've ever seen wrestling, in particular the fake kind, right, WWF, that kind of stuff, they have something called the suplex. Now, I'm not a big fan, but uh, from what I recommend, when when a suplex takes place, one wrestler gets the guy kind of like this in a bear hug and basically slams him, arching his back into the ground. Well, just imagine me with the football, Mark taking hold of me like a WWF wrestler and suplexing me to the ground. And not only did he suplex me, he sat on me. He sat on me, and he's big, he's, he's hefty. He sat on me, and he rubbed my face into the dirt. And at that point, I had no air. The football went like this into my stomach, and I couldn't breathe. And I started to cry because I couldn't breathe. And he sat on me, and he rubbed his face in the dirt. And the coach yelled at the offensive lineman, that's why you're supposed to block. That's why you're supposed to block. That's what happens when you don't block. And all the while, I'm turning blue because I I can't breathe, right? I still can't breathe. And the coach says, put your arms over your head. And I went, and I could breathe again. So... It wasn't very pleasant to have my face rubbed into the South Texas dirt. I was being oppressed by the defensive lineman, by my friend Mark Gonzalez, who at our graduation day said, Hey, you remember when I made you cry in seventh grade? (laughs) Yes, Mark, I remember that. (laughs) Thank you for reminding me. You know, that's what was going on. The rich in Israel, they did not care for the poor. They didn't care. And while in Deuteronomy chapter 15, God explicitly told his people, you need to care about the poor. You need to not mistreat them. They were doing exactly the opposite. So we come to our our first lesson here. And that's simply this. We need to care about the poor. We need to care about the poor in our land, in our state, in our world, but even maybe more so around us, in our church in our town here in Cisna Park or wherever you live. And so the question is, is do we? More pointedly, the question is, do you? Do you care about them? Do you give them job opportunities if you have that chance or do you simply ride them off? Do you assume that they're all lazy? They're all just lazy. Or do you actually investigate into the circumstances of their life? Are you aware of the needs of those around you? Maybe your neighbors, your coworkers, maybe the families of the kids who go to school with your kids. Are you aware of their circumstances? Do you pay attention to hear about needs? I did a little research, and uh, if I were to ask you, what do you think would be the percentage of Cisna Park residents living below the poverty line? Now, this is in 2012. It's the latest, the latest data I could find. But if I were to ask you, what do you think, what percentage of Cisna Parkers live below the poverty line? Okay, think in your mind, what do you think is the number? Okay, here's the number, nine point something percent, nine point something percent, roughly 10% of uh, Cisna Park residents live below the poverty line. There are people around us who could use some help. And so the question is, are we aware? Do we know? 
So he's talked about the first sin. For three sins of Israel, even for four, the first one is social injustice. The second one, as he moves into the second part of verse 7, is immorality. But specifically, sexual immorality. Read what he says about what was happening in 7b. Father and son use the same girl. It's a euphemism. Father and son use the same girl. And then what is the result? What happens when there is sexual immorality among God's people? And so profane my holy name. So what was going on here? We don't know specifically. Um, Obviously, a father and a son had intimate relations with the same girl. And yet, uh, it could be a slave girl. It could be most likely what most scholars think is that we know that there is uh, idolatry going on. We know that there's idolatry in the land. We know that one of the chief idols is the god, uh, little g god by the name of Baal. And we know that there was temple prostitution going on as a part of the worship of Baal. So Baal was the thunder god, the god of thunder, and in particular the god of rain. And as odd as it sounds, it was thought that for him to give rain or seed on the earth, he had to be stimulated in heaven. And that's how it would happen. And so there was immorality going on. There was sexual immorality in the land. God's law from the beginning, from Genesis 1 and 2, forbid going on through the Mosaic law, sexual intimacy outside of the marriage covenant. This was God's design for sexuality, was to be within the confines of a committed, loving marriage relationship that had the possibility of procreating. That was God's design for sexuality. Not to limit sexuality, but so it would flourish. And yet we see here in this nation, uh, the people were not doing what God had said. And so here's the lesson for us here in the great United States of America, here in Cisna Park. We need to honor God with our sexuality. We need to honor God with our sexuality. God's people many years ago were not, and sadly today, many people still do not honor God with their sexuality. Um, Having uh, sex before marriage nowadays is pretty much the norm. It's pretty much the norm. It's kind of what happens. And uh, sadly, this even happens in the church. Here are some statistics, and I want you to make your own judgment. How is, what is the state of sexuality in America? Is it according to God's design? Only 3% of Americans will wait until marriage to have sexual intimacy. Only 3%. Uh, While only 20% of those who consider themselves highly religious, whatever that means, will wait as well. It gets even worse, according to the uh, Barna Report 2014, the state of dating in America. 61% of Christians say that they would have sex before marriage. 61% of people who claim uh, that they submit to the scriptures and claim Jesus as their Lord will do that. Cohabitation. There are some interesting stats. Today, over half of all first-time marriages... Over half of all first-time marriages are now preceded by cohabitation. 56% of Christians say that it's okay to live with the other person after 6 to 12 months worth of dating. And so in the church, it has apparently become even normal. And yet here's the truth. Here's this, the, the, the stats bear this out. It's, it's amazing. The stats say that... It, that cohabitation is linked to all sorts of things. Number one, it's linked to a higher divorce rate. By 
up to 33 to 150%, your risk of divorce is increased by simply living with your partner. The annual rates of depression are more than three times higher for those who cohabitate. Two times more likely is a woman likely to be abused when she is in a cohabiting relationship. And consistently, couples report less marital happiness and more marital conflict when they engage in cohabitation. So let me ask you, are there consequences to doing it God's way and not doing it God's way? What about pornography? There's lots of stats, but here's just a quick one. 50% of Christian men and 20% of self-identified Christian women say that they are addicted to pornography. Now, we're not talking about just occasional use. Addicted to pornography. And so apparently the American church, much like God's people of old, fall into sexual immorality. So let me ask you, do you honor God's name with your sexuality if you are a born-again Christian? We've seen social injustice. We've seen sexual immorality. Starting in verse 8 through verse 11, we see the third, right? For three sins of Israel, yet for four, one, two, and now we're on number three, starting in verse 8. And that third sin is idolatry. Let's read it together, starting in verse 8. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, little g, in my Bible, They drink wine taken as fines. So what's going on here, right? What's going on? Well, in addition to selling those who were indebted to them into slavery, creditors would do this. What the creditors would do is they would not return a garment given to them as collateral. That is, somebody says, I'm going to... I'm going to lend you money, but you have to give me your garment as collateral that you're going to pay it back. But the law said, what God said is at the end of the day, you give that garment back to them because they need it. But the people of Israel were not doing it. They were even wearing these garments that they would not give back in idolatrous worship. They also would fine people, their debtors, and have them be paid in wine. And then they would take that wine and they would drink it on a in the temple of a pagan idol. So there was idolatry in the land. We'll see this again and again in Amos. So what is, uh, what's the result? Verses 9 through 11, we get a little brief reprieve. Amos is going to contrast Israel's unfaithfulness to their God through idolatry with God's faithfulness throughout their history to them. He's, he's essentially going to say, listen, you're not faithful to me, but I've been so faithful to you. Verses 9 through 11. Let's read that together. Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were as tall as the cedars and as strong as the oaks. I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. I brought you out, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from, um, from among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? So he says, you're engaged in idolatry, but I've been nothing but faithful to you. And so we come to our third lesson. The sin of idolatry is not exclusive to Israel. The sin of idolatry is not exclusive to millennium of years ago. The lesson is this. We need to magnify God's faithfulness to us by worshiping him alone. 
if you wanted to say it negatively, we need to identify and destroy our idols so that our hearts are God's alone. There are some similarities. Uh, We see that Amos mentioned uh, some critical events in the life of the history of Israel, right? He says, listen, I have... I took you out of slavery and I gave you a land that wasn't yours and I destroyed the people for you. And we too, as the church, like Israel, we have been purchased by the blood of of a lamb from death, just as they were so long ago. And we've been purchased by the blood of a lamb from death and from slavery, just as they were. They were enslaved to the Egyptians, and we all are enslaved to sin, and we have been led into the promised land of heaven. But too often, we too, like God's people of old, allow our hearts to be infatuated with other things, and we make them our gods. Ken Sanders, in one of his books, explains this idea of common-day idolatry. He says this, his words are pointed. Most of us think that an idol, Think of an idol as a statue of wood or stone or metal worshipped by some pagan people. But the concept of idolatry is much broader and far more personal than that. An idol is anything apart from God, so listen, listen up, that we depend on to be happy, fulfilled, or secure. In biblical terms, it's something other than God that we set our heart on, that motivates us, that masters us, that rules over us, or that we trust, we fear, or we serve. In short, he says, it is something we love and pursue more than God. The great theologian Martin Luther said that our heart, and I'm paraphrasing him, He said, our our heart is like an idol factory. It's like an idol factory. Our fallen heart just produces idols. David Paulison in his book, Seeing with New Eyes, gives us a very helpful list of questions that are just simply meant to help us begin to identify our idols. Because folks, if you don't think that idolatry happens in America and in my heart and in yours, then you are mistaken. So here's 12 helpful questions. Number one, What do I worry about the most? That one, I think, is very helpful. What do you worry about the most? It may be an idol. What, if I failed or lost it, would cause me to feel that I did not even want to live? So if you failed at something, or if you lost something, would it drive you to suicidal thoughts? Would it drive you to say, my life is meaningless? That most likely is an idol. Number three, what do I use to comfort myself when things go bad or they get difficult? Number four, related question, what do I do to cope? What are my release valves? What do I do to feel better? Because oftentimes the things that we maybe turn to when life is hard or difficult to comfort ourselves, that may in turn be an idol. Number five, what preoccupies me? What do I daydream about? How about you? What do you find yourself thinking about when your head is on your pillow and you're trying to fall asleep at night? What comes to your mind? What preoccupies you as you're at work and you're not really working because you're daydreaming about that which your heart longs for? What, what, what are you thinking about? Number six, what makes me feel the most self-worth? Of what am I most proud of? For what do I want to be known? Is it being a mother? 
Is it being a, 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 a father? Is it, is it being a pastor? Is it being wealthy? Is it having kids that behave? What, what is it? What is it? Number seven, what do I lead in with conversations? That is, when you're meeting someone, hi, my name's Trey Sheffer. I'm a pastor. Because my identity is often wrapped up in what I do. Number eight, early on, number nine, what, what prayer, unanswered, what prayer, if unanswered, would make me seriously think about turning away from God? Have you ever had those conversations? God, if you don't come through on this, if you don't do this, you take away this, I don't know if I'm going to be faithful to you. Number 10, what do I really want or expect out of life? What would really make me happy? In other words, if I just had this, if this just happened in this relationship, if this just happened at work, if this just happened with my kids, what is it that we expect, that we think would give us ultimate satisfaction. Verse 11, what is, <laughs> number 11, what is my hope for the future? What do you daydream about? What do you anticipate in the future will ultimately make you happy? And number 12, what do you blog, tweet, or post the most about on social networks? You ever thought about that one? You ever go back and look at your Facebook account? Or I don't know, are there other social networks other than Facebook? If there are, I don't know, maybe there are. Twitter, Instagram, right? What do you tweet about? What do you post about? You know, what, what dominates those things. Well, it may just be what is most valuable to you. Helpful things, because idolatry is here and now. Number four, for three sins of Israel, yet for four, we've seen three, now let's see the last one. Verses 12 through 14, we see Amos saying, listen, you have rejected God's representatives. Verses 12 through 16. But you made the Nazarite drink wine, and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Remember what he just said at verse 11. God said, listen, I gave you prophets to speak my word to you. I gave you the the Nazarite, which was a person who set themselves aside for God for a short period of time to show their devotion and their consecration to God. He said, I gave you these people, but what did they do with them? Verse 12, but you made them drink wine, which is one of the things they weren't supposed to do. You commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Verse 13, so... They rejected God's representatives. And verses 13 through 16 is the penalty. Remember, he talks about the team, the rule they broke. Now, what's the penalty? Verse 13, now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape. The strong will not muster their strength. The warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away. And the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest Warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. It's a picture of complete judgment, of a complete military judgment. It's a sevenfold description, which is the ideal completion number of complete judgment, which was ultimately served in 722 by the Assyrian army. So, so what did they do? What was the fourth sin, right? God gave them prophets. That's how God spoke to his people. He said, I'm going I'm to give you prophets to speak my word to you. But what did they say? Shut up. We don't want to hear you. Stop saying that. Stop, stop, stop speaking for God. We don't want to hear God's word. They, he gave them the Nazarites to be devoted. And they saw this, this devotion to God. And they said, we don't want to be devoted like that. So listen, break your vows. 
just stop, drink wine. I know you're not supposed to, but listen, you're shedding a bad light on my lack of devotion. And they rejected God's representatives. It's kind of like in high school. Maybe you were there on one end or the other. In high school, when a big test was coming up, uh, grades were always important to me. So I studied and I worked relatively hard in high school when I had to, right? When I had to. And uh, so, you know, a big test, I'm studying. And my, you know, some of my friends who were, let's say, uh, less devoted to (laughs) getting good grades, they would say, hey, we're gonna go play basketball. Hey, we're gonna go to the movies. Hey, we're gonna go shoot people with paintball guns or whatever mischief we got into, right? Hey, come do this. And I'd say, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to study. God's, the Nazarites were saying, I'm going to be devoted to God. And the other people were saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Come with me. Come with me. So here's the fourth lesson that we'll end on. We need to receive God's representatives. Here's, here's, here's a, how I think I would apply this today. Maybe how most frequently this looks like. A rejection of God's representatives for an individual. Uh, I want to speak mostly to the church setting. I think it most looks like when when a church says, we don't want to hear the whole counsel of God's word. We're going to push back on you, pastor, elder, Sunday school teacher, deacon. We're going to push back on you and we're going to ask you to not preach about certain things. We're going to ask you to, to, to maybe tidy up or, you know, just kind of skew the truth a little bit. Don't, don't teach on something controversial. Maybe it's not using the language of sin, but just simply mistakes or poor decisions. Maybe it's not even using the name of Jesus because, heaven forbid, that's controversial. It might offend someone. Maybe it's not speaking about things that are kind of harder to take, like the idea of hell or the blood of Christ. Man, how archaic is that? Maybe it's wanting uh, the pastor or a church or leaders to not take a stand, just to sit on the sidelines, to sit on the fence on issues maybe related to marriage or sexuality or divorce. Just, just ride the fence, okay? Maybe it's wanting the preacher or the pastors or the, the elders. Listen, you need to shorten that sermon. It's, and it is. I'm over. It, we need to do that. Pastor, you're going long. Don't you know the Bears play? Well, no, I don't know the Bears play because I know the Cowboys are better. But um, listen, I don't know when the Bears play. Um, that's going to come back to bite me, I think. Uh, <laughs> you know, here's the deal. When I'm watching college football, do I ever go like this and be like, man, uh, this game needs to be over. Well, I do when my team's losing. But let's say in a good game, I don't ever be like, man, this is so boring. Why am I watching this football game? Why is that? Because I have an appetite for what I'm watching. And here's the deal, folks. When we sit in the pews, and this is me uh, as well, when we hear God's word and we're like, man, the bears are playing now. When is this guy's going way too long? What does that say about our appetite for what's coming from the pulpit? What does it say? So they've rejected God's representatives. Four sins. Social injustice, sexual immorality, idolatry, rejection of God's representatives. Amos has hit his bullseye. That's what he's been going after as the nation of Israel and a fourfold sin. I still remember when I got close to hitting my bullseye. I remember bringing home the turkey. I remember showing my mom, listen, is this close from the bullseye, right? Just inches. I, I won. I was so proud of getting close to the bullseye. Well, Amos didn't get close. He, he nailed it. He targeted the nation of Israel, and with these four introductory sins that break God's heart, he hit his bullseye. 
and the bullseye was the nation of Israel. Often lost in this, often lost in this, all of the rules that these nations have broke is God's patience. Because what we find out is God says, for you, Ammon, for you, this nation, for you, Edom, for three sins, yet for four. And we're like, man, that's kind of harsh. But for almost all of these nations, God had given them years, decades, even centuries for these people to repent. It's not like God's like, oh, there's the first rule. You broke it. I'm going to get you. He has been incredibly gracious, seeking repentance from all of these nations, wanting them to turn to him and to obey. God does not delight in judging people. He warns, he waits, he wants people to repent and to turn from him and to find life. Second Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise to send Jesus back to this earth, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Friends, God patiently waits to send Jesus back to this earth to judge the world because he wants me and you to turn to Jesus in repentance and in faith, trusting in what Jesus has done for us. So have you received Jesus as your personal Savior? Have you begun to follow him as your Lord? If not, God is waiting, patiently waiting. But one day, Jesus the lion from the tribe of Judah will come back and he will roar. And he will roar his wrath upon anyone who doesn't take refuge in his life, in his death, in his resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. So if you've never done that, we're going to pray now and we're going to be done. Pray with me if you want to know for sure that you are right with God and a born-again Christian. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for all of the insight that you've given to how you want people, nations, to treat other people and to relate to you. Father, if there's a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, and they don't know for sure that they are right with you, that they have been born again, that they have had their sins forgiven, that they are, have been made into a new creature, a new man, a new woman through faith in Jesus, receiving this gift of salvation and forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with you and a new heart, the gift of the Holy Spirit to come and to change them, to give them joy and peace and purpose in life, then may they now repent of their sin, of their rejection of you, and may they turn to Jesus, accepting his gift, accepting his perfect life for their imperfect life, accepting his sacrificial death for what they deserved in hell, and receive this new eternal life as Jesus rose from the dead, paving the way to heaven for us and promising to bring us there one day. We prayed in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Thanks for seeing, uh, coming. We'll see you next week.